Welcome to the Renaissance Podcast, and thank you for joining with us to worship and learn more about God. We are so excited to have you be a part of this week's service. For more podcasts and services from past weeks, or to join us online on Sunday mornings, check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Now, enjoy the message. It's so good to be here. Thank you. Um, my name is Jeff. I'm one of the leaders here at the church. As Chris said, he's one of the leaders as well. Um, many of us take the responsibility of leading um, the church in a number of different ways. And um, it's wonderful to see how God's people come together, uh, like-minded interests, all working together to serve all of you um, when you come in to hear about Jesus and to worship him and to herald his great name. So um, can we give Chris a hand for what he did? I thought he did a great job. And uh, I'm excited and honored to be able to teach from Esther chapter 4 today. If you have a Bible with you, um, you can turn to Esther chapter 4. We're in a a five-week series in the book of Esther. This is our third week, so we're halfway through after today. And um, I'm learning a lot as we go through this book. Um, I'm learning a lot because studying the Bible is real important to me. It's real important to anyone, I would say, if you're a Christian. So if you're a Christian in this room, welcome. (laughs) Welcome to Renaissance. If you're not a Christian, welcome to Renaissance. Um, But reading the Bible, studying the Bible is an important thing for us. So as you turn to chapter 4, I want to give you um, a little insight, a background into my story when I came to faith and became a Christian and how I began to engage with the Scripture um, and how I began to just look at it. So when I, when I was a young Christian, just brand new into the, um, the whole world of Jesus Christ, um, the Bible was a foreign thing to me. Anyone want to like say, gosh, it does seem like a strange ancient book, right? And um, I began to read it and to study it because I thought that's what I was supposed to do, right, as a Christian. And I think that is important. But know this, there's a couple different ways that we can study Scripture, that we can study through the, the Bible. And the way I began my Christian life, was I began to look at the book and study it as a means to itself. What I mean by that is this, is I began to study Scripture to to know the Bible. Because I I didn't know the Bible, so the church I used to go to, the pastor would say, hey, open your Bibles to Ecclesiastes something, something, something. And I'm going, oh crap, I have no idea where Ecclesiastes is, right? And I would look at the table of contents and feel some shame. Just so you know, there's no shame in looking at your table of contents, right? They put it in there for a reason, right? I just know that. But I I wanted to know my way around the Bible. And um, and so I, I started to study it. And and I learned that there's actually a lot of information that's mentioned like in the Old Testament that the New Testament authors also mention. And there's all kinds of these little hyperlinks back and forth. And the more you study the Bible, the more you understand Scripture, you begin to see that the whole thing is one nest of, of things connected to one another. And there's one hero in the Bible, and his name is Jesus. Jesus. Thank you for that. That's the answer always at Renaissance. But anyways, um, but I, I became familiar with the Bible like, so now when my pastor said, open your Bible to 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians, I went, oh, okay, New Testament. Um, it's not a gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's a writing of Paul. And I, right, you know what I'm saying? So I got real familiar with the Bible, um, but that was it. It became like a familiar book to me. If you have a familiar book that maybe you read when you were younger, that you went back to every year and reread it, and every page you turned, you knew what's happening next because you've read it so many times. The pages are dog-eared and underlined. Anyone have books like this? You know what I'm talking about. Maybe it's not books anymore. It's movies. you got movies that you've watched 100 times over. Christmas at our house, this is so strange to admit to you, but we watch the Lord of the Rings trilogy every Christmas. 
It's the best Christmas movie ever. I don't understand that, but we do. It's just a part of our thing. And we know as a family what's happening in the next scene. We say the words that the characters are going to say before they say them, right? And so Bible study that way, you become familiar with the Bible. But there's another way to study the Bible. And this is the way that I've been reading it lately. This is the way I've been studying it lately. I've been looking into the scripture to not just know things about the Bible and how it interacts with one another and how the authors tied the story together but I began to read the Bible to understand and, and, to, and began to understand that it's the story about God. <laughs> Duh, right? Jeez, you're a pastor? I know, <laughs> right? And it's a story about his son, Jesus. And that everything in the stories, in the scriptures, point back to Jesus. And in fact, um, Jesus mentions this himself when he was talking to Pharisees and scribes, religious leaders in the New Testament, John chapter 5. Jesus talks to the Bible scholars of his day and, and gives them this simple, yet hear me, scathing rebuke. And he says this, verse 39, he says, You search the scriptures because you think that in them you can have eternal life. Which, Just so you know, you can find eternal life in the scriptures. Jesus is not wrong, but it's how you go about finding it. He says, because it is the scriptures that bear witness about me couple things you need to know. Jesus is not talking about the New Testament because the New Testament didn't exist at this time. He's talking about what? The Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament scriptures. I've read the entire Old Testament. It doesn't say Jesus' name in there. It's not in there. So how on earth is Jesus saying that the Old Testament is talking about him? Because Jesus is hidden in the Old Testament. There's shadows and prefigures of who Jesus is. And it's a long story to say this, but, but know this, that Jesus is the hero of the Bible. And when we read the Old Testament scriptures, we should be looking for Jesus. Are we, you guys okay right now? I'll just nod and I'll move on. Right? We're looking for Jesus in the story. And I'm not uh, unusual to think this way either. John Calvin said this, that we ought to believe that Christ cannot be properly known in any other way than through the scriptures. And if that's true, then it follows that we ought to read the scriptures with the express design of finding Christ in them. This is why we read scripture. It's to find Christ. This is why we look at the Old Testament stories. This is why we read the New Testament stories to learn about Jesus. Martin Luther parrots this idea a couple years before John Calvin. He says this, We must read the scriptures with one eye fixed on Jesus Christ and with a constant effort to see how each portion of Scripture points back to him. So this is just a pylon that I'm trying to drive in the ground for us today that we will circle back to. So as we read Esther chapter 4, is he ever going to read Esther chapter 4? <laughs> I'm just saying. <laughs> yes, the answer is yes. But as we do so, we're doing so with this idea in mind that we're looking for who in the Old Testament? For Jesus that his name won't be mentioned here, but we have to be astute students and look to find Jesus in that. Know this, that when we read the Bible, we learn a lot of information about God and Jesus. And this is called theology. So we're going to do a little theology work today, which sounds kind of boring, but don't think it is. Theology just comes from the Greek word theos, which means God, and the Greek word logos, or ology, which means word. So when we're doing Bible study, Looking for things about God, we're looking for words about God, the study of God. And this is the most important thing. And then after this, I stop and move on. But when we begin to encounter this truth about God, this knowledge of God, this word of God, this, it, this, when, we, it, when that information comes to us and we receive it, this is the important thing, it transforms us. It changes us. 
It's, it goes beyond just an intellectual understanding of, of things about God, and you begin to know the living God. You begin to know Jesus Christ, the Son, and, and encounter the Holy Spirit, who is God, who empowers us to live our Christian experience. And you see there's a difference, a distinction. It's small, but it's a distinction nonetheless. And that's what we're trying to do. So, if you weren't here for the past few weeks, here's a recap or cliff notes of Esther's 1, 2, and 3. <laughs> so we can get into chapter 4. King Xerxes is the king or ruler of the Persian Empire. And he's a character in this story. He is the most powerful man in the world. He is rich. He is reckless and he is debauched. If you don't know what that looks like, just think about your Friday night or something. I don't know, right? Well, maybe not you guys, but some people, if you know what I'm saying. Easy. So, and he has a, a drunken evening one night where he orders his queen, her name was Vashti, to parade in front of him and his friends, his drunken friends. And the implication is here that I think he wanted to parade her in front of all of them with nothing on but her crown. We'll leave that to the imagination. And Vashti says, no, good for her. And so she was deposed and we never hear of her again. So a search was then given throughout the entire Persian empire to find the king a new queen. And girls, young virgins from all over the empire were brought before the king, added to his harem. And eventually, through a series of coincidences, if you will, a young Jewish girl named Hadassah, who was being raised by her uncle Mordecai as an orphan, was chosen to be the new queen. This Hadassah also has a Persian name. Her Hebrew name was Hadassah. Her per Persian name was Esther. And both Esther and her uncle Mordecai were Jewish, but they didn't tell anyone that they were Jewish. This is the author's way of using foreshadowing, which tells us that something terrible is going to happen to the Jewish people. And something terrible is about to happen. Haman, who is Xerxes' second-in-command, right, he hates Mordecai, the Jew, Esther's uncle, and he decides to destroy all the Jewish people in the Persian kingdom. Overreact much, <laughs> right? He hates Mordecai, so he's going to kill all the Jewish people. And the Bible tells us that he's going to pay for it. He tells the king, I'll even pay, I'll fit the bill for this thing. So an edict was written and delivered throughout the entire Persian empire, commanding that all the Jewish people were to be annihilated, to be exterminated on a certain date several months from now. This edict goes out, it's delivered to the whole empire and into all the cities, and the Jewish people are beginning to panic. You can imagine what this feels like. I'm just trying to set the stage for where we're at. The Jewish people begin to panic. What is going to happen to them? What can they do? Is anyone able to help us? Can anyone stop this from happening? Will God, here's the important one, will God remember his covenant with us? Mordecai and Esther are Jewish people. They're God's covenant people. And an edict has been placed upon them that they are to be executed. And the question remains, will God rescue us? Because he made a covenant with us. God made a promise with us. Is God a promise breaker? Is God a covenant breaker? We don't know. We, this is the story we're entering into. And so we're going to find out here in chapter 4. If I have any time left. Do I have any time left? <laughs> That's a long intro. You're welcome. So, verse 1. Mordecai learned all that had been done. And Mordecai tears his clothes and he puts on sackcloth and ashes and he goes out into the midst of the city and he cries out with a loud and bitter cry. 
He goes up to the entrance of the king's gate, which we know that Mordecai actually worked at the king's gate. He actually had a job with the palace or with the kingdom. But they say no one is allowed to enter the king's gate clothed in sackcloth. And in every province where the king's command and his decree reached, there was great, what, mourning among the Jews and fasting and weeping and lamenting, and many of them lay in sackcloth and ashes. Now, before we move forward, we have to understand what is the author trying to say with the sackcloth and ashes? This is an Old Testament way of signifying that the Jewish people are in mourning, that sackcloth was a, a, a clothing made from goat skin is real itchy and uncomfortable, and they would wear that. I don't know why. Right? Maybe just to express their uncomfortableness of their situation. And they would oftentimes throw ashes upon their head, which just signified desolation and ruin. That they are ruined people. They're dead men walking. This is the argument. Something, they're dead. They're dead. A day is coming when we're going to be executed. And Mordecai is outside the city. And the author lays into that. He's in the, out in the city. He's outside the gate. There's great grief that's happening outside the palace outside the citadel, in the city, and in the rest of the, the Persian Empire. But inside the palace, there's not so much grief happening there. In verse 4, it says this, When Esther's young women and her eunuchs, these are her assistants, if you will, when they find out, they come and tell her, they learn about Mordecai, they come and tell Esther the queen that Mordecai is running around in sackcloth and ashes, and it says the queen was distressed, deeply distressed. And so what does she do? She sends garments to clothe Mordecai so that he might take off his sackcloth. Esther is operating like a person in the kingdom or the empire, where everything is appearances and visual. Oh no, Mordecai, you mustn't run around with sackcloth and ashes. Here, some fine clothes from the king's tailor. <laughs> Put these on, as if somehow a change of clothes will assuage his desolation. Somehow, if I can just get him to look different, maybe he'll begin to feel different. But Mordecai knows that this is something greater than just a clothing wardrobe change um, is, is going to fix. So he refuses them, verse 4. And so Esther then calls for Hathak, one of the king's eunuchs, who is also appointed to attend her. And he orders Hathak to go to Mordecai and to learn what the f is going on, right? <laughs> what, why, are you, why are you running around in sackcloth and ashes? And so we see in this part of the story, um, the author is showing us that there's a mediator needed, a go-between. Are you picking this up? That there's a go-between um, between Mordecai and Esther, even though he raised her from a young girl since she became part of the harem and then eventually the queen, they've not had contact with one another. So they have this person that goes in between them to to tell what's happening. They have communication, but they don't have face-to-face -face communication, if you know what I'm saying. So the author is showing us that there's this go-between that's needed. And Hathak is a picture of what that looks like. And so this person goes to uh, Mordecai and, and tries to find out what's going on. She orders Mordecai to go learn what the heck is going on. And so he, so she, so he goes. And, and Mordecai responds in this, verse 6. Hathak goes out to Mordecai to the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Again, Mordecai's outside the palace. Mordecai tells him everything that happened. And he even uh, quotes the exact sum of money that Haman had promised to pay into the king's treasuries for the destruction of the Jews. Like he hates the Jewish people. You feeling this, right? Mordecai, verse 8, also gives this go-between a copy of the written decree issued in Susa for the Jewish people's destruction. And he does this that he might then show it to Esther and explain everything to her. And then he 
commands her to go to the king and to beg his favor and plead with him, the king, on, be- on behalf of who? Her people. There's a lot of words. I apologize. I'm really trying to get through all of this. But Mordecai and Esther had not been telling anyone that they were Jewish. And now all of a sudden, Mordecai's acting in a very Jewish fashion. Would you agree? <laughs> Running around with sackcloth and ashes. Oh, that's a Jewish person. Oh, oh, all the Jewish people are doing this. And now Mordecai is telling the queen, you need to now go tell them you're Jewish too. And not only that, he wants her to have all the details on what's taking place, why this thing is going down the way it is. Tells her in great deal everything has happened. And second, he then instructs um, Esther to go to the king. Side note, this is the last time Mordecai ever tells Esther to do anything in her life that we know of. He raised her as a young girl. She, like, he parented her. He told her all these things to do. Do this, don't do this. He was always there to instruct her. And in this moment, this is the last time we see Mordecai give instructions to Esther. This is key for a moment. Not for right now, but in a moment. This will be key for us. This is the last time he does this. So, anyways, verse 10 we're flying now. You guys ready for this? Then it says, Then Esther spoke to Hathak and commanded him to go to Mordecai and say this. So this person's running back and forth. What the? All right, what the? And then telling all the stories. And she goes to here in verse 11 and says this, That all of the king's servants, pause, of which Mordecai you are one. <laughs> right? He is one. He works for the king in the gate. All of the king's servants and the people of the king and the people in the king's province know this, that if any man or woman goes to the king inside the inner court without being called or summoned, there is but one law, to be put to death. So if she goes before the king without being summoned there, she could be put to death. Except, unless the the one to whom the king holds out his golden scepter, then that person may live. But as for me, she says, I have not even been called to come into the king these last 30 days. So what's happening here in this situation is Mordecai commands or instructs Esther to go to the king, tell him you're Jewish, and then beg for the the, the deliverance of your people. Tell them what's going on, that there's an edict that he has signed, he got tricked into signing it, whatever, but just tell him what's happening. And she's saying, I can't go there because if I go, he might kill me. And you know this, Mordecai. Are you asking me to risk my life? Like, are you freaking kidding me, Mordecai? This is the question. This is what you want of me? That I might go and lose my life? Anyways, and she also says, I haven't been called to the king in like 30 days. Like, it's not like we run into each other in the kitchen when he's warming up a bagel in the toaster. Like, we live in different parts of the whole palace thing. Like, when when he wants me or needs me, he calls for me. You know what I'm saying? And he hasn't called for me in a while. Hear me when I say this. The, the author is telling us that this situation, wait for it, is hopeless. That a day on the calendar is, is looming when all the Jewish people will be executed. And the one hope is that somehow, by a strange set of circumstances, Esther, this young Jewish girl, becomes queen. And, and, and Mordecai is saying, listen, and, you know, there's probably a reason why you're here. We'll get to that in a moment. But go to the king. You're our only hope. And she says, I can't. I'll lose my life, possibly. I'm not going to run into him any other way. So this thing's dead, Mordecai. There's nothing we can do here. 
Mordecai responds to her, verse 13. Do not think to yourself, Esther, (laughs) I can just hear his voice, that in the king's palace that you're going to escape any more than all of the other Jews. Just because you're inside the palace, protected by the fortified gates and walls, don't think that you're going to be spared this edict because they're going to find out, Esther. The jig is up. They know you're my niece. I'm Jewish. Look at my sackcloth. Look at my ashes. Did I say that right? (laughs) Just making sure. Anyways. Don't think you're going to escape just because you're inside the palace. He says for, in verse 14, and this is where it gets so good for us. Verse 14. He says, for if you keep silent at this time, relief and deliverance, it will rise for the Jews from another place. But you and your father's house, you're going to perish. Who knows? Maybe you've come into the kingdom for such a time as this. How many have heard that verse particularly quoted from Esther, probably heard a sermon preached on it. Hear me when I say this, this is not that sermon. (laughs) This is not that. He says, don't think just because you're in a palace you're going to escape this. They're going to find out who it is. But he says this in verse 14, but relief and deliverance will come for the Jews, will rise for the Jews from another place. I'd like to think about this as a small sermonette, if you will, that Mordecai is preaching to his niece, the queen, Esther. That he's beginning to tell her again and again and reminding her of how good God is. And you need to see it this way too. Mordecai's explaining to her that God is sovereign in all situations. There's nothing that happens on the earth that God is not in somewhat control of it or in total control of it. That he orchestrates all of the things on the earth. And listen, Miss Esther, young lady, If you don't do this, that's fine. The Jewish people will be fine. Why? Because God is a covenant-keeping God. That God is a promise-keeping God. And he's preaching these words to her that she might understand that God is going to do something, hear me, with or without you. This is theology. This is the knowledge of God. This is the words of God. And when these words that are truthful, when they, when they are learned and understood and received by the person as truth, it changes them. And when you and I, when we encounter the truth of God's word and we receive what God is trying to say to us, I love what Pastor Josh said just before I walked up here, that we are putting ourselves before the word of God that it might encounter us, that it would change us. And this is the hope of of, um, myself and all the leaders here every week when people come in and we open the scriptures and the truth of God's word would be proclaimed, that it would interact with you and that you would believe it and it would change your life. That it's the one thing that I am 100% certain of that can change your life for the better. It's changed my life. It has changed the lives of many other people as well. In this little sermonette, as I see it, (laughs) proclaiming the goodness of who God is, the strength of God, his ability to do things. Um, If you guys ever play chess, and the Esther thing has like a chess thing, I would just like, the people who are good at chess are the people who can see four, five, and ten moves ahead, you know what I'm talking about? Hear me, that's God in our lives. That's God in our lives. 
He, he sees the end from the beginning. He, he can see even the future before it even happens. He knows everything that's taking place. Mordecai knows this. He, he uses language like, you and your father's house, you'll be ruined. What is he saying there? He's like, you, you have a lineage that goes way back into the Jewish people, Esther. And you need to remember, do you remember the story when God rescued his people out of Egypt? The promise-keeping God who rescued people in a deplorable state, in desolation, sackcloth and ashes, they were there in that place. And God rescued them. And when death was certain at the, 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 the edge of the Red Sea, God came and rescued them again. And as they made their way into the promised land, when other nations would come and attack them and try to defeat God's people, God's a covenant-keeping, promise-keeping God, and he defeated all of their enemies even then. You, Esther, are part of that story. Do you not remember it? Some of you are part of that story too. That God has done something in your life. I don't know when it was. It's a few years ago, a few months ago, I don't know. And, and, and because things are so challenging, like in your current situation, I don't need to know your story, right? But we live in this world, right? I know it's challenging. And many of us are wrestling. Is this, is this it for us? Is this it? Is this all I have to look forward to? Is, this, is there no way out of this? And we almost feel like we're like Mordecai and the rest of the Jews wondering, will it ever get better for us? What about all of those things that God promised me those many years ago or whatever? And we're beginning to think like that. Hear the words of Mordecai, that God can save you, that God can rescue you. He can change this. There's a, a literary word called peripety. Have I mentioned that in this series yet? It's fun to say. Let's say it together. Peripety, <laughs> right? Peripety. It just means this. It just, it's a way that, that writers of stories write when, when circumstances of a character are just flipped 180 degrees in an instant. Like, it's just, there's just this way that God does something in this story, and we'll see it in the coming weeks, where, where this uh, desolation and ruin that is impending is just automatically reversed. And it's, it's a thing that only God can do. And that's the setup that's happening here, that we must be people to, to think like that, that even though things look bleak and dark right now, God is faithful to his people, right? And, and we're, we're his covenant people, not like the Jewish people. We're, we're his covenant people now through faith in Jesus Christ, through what Jesus Christ has done for us. Because he's a promise-keeping God, like he was then, he'll still be a promise-keeping God now. I see a few people nodding. If you guys just nod more, I'll move on. It helps me. It's not as hopeless as you think, Esther. It's at this point that the commentators all remind us that Esther is the only person in this entire book that has two different names. I mentioned it earlier. She has a Hebrew name, Hadassah and a Persian name, Esther. And the commentators point to this as maybe some way that the author is trying to remind us that there are actually two different identities that Esther is trying to wrestle with. I don't liken it to the angel and the demon on her shoulder, but you know what I'm talking about. There's two different lives that sometimes we feel like we're called to live. There's the life of, the life of God's covenant people, right? The, 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 I want to live a Christian life, and then there's the other life that wants to live like all my friends live. Anyone? <laughs> right? And Esther is in this place where she has to pick. There's a moment that's happening, and it's happening for, for such a time as this, possibly, that there's a, a, she has to choose. 
when she hears the sermon, the sermonette, right, from Mordecai, and she hears the truth about who God is, and she believes it, something changes. Look in this next verse. Verse 15, Esther then tells Hathak to reply to Mordecai, Go, gather all the Jews to be found in the city of Susa, and hold a fast on my behalf. Don't eat or drink for three days, nights, or day. I had, I'll have my young women, all of my servants, also do a fast with me. And look what she says. Then I will go to the king. Then I'll go, though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. Verse 17. And then Mordecai then went and did everything as Esther, as Esther ordered him to do. Something changed her. The truth of God's word came inside of her and made her a different person. It solidified her resolve that God is good and I will go before the king, just as you said I should go. And if I perish, I perish. We'll talk about that in a moment. The, the, um, the commentators all say this too, that Esther is called queen, I think 13, 14 or 15 times in this book of Esther. 14 or 15 times. All of them but one, she's called queen after this exchange. It's almost in this moment that her identity shifts and she becomes a different person. Her resolve is changed because she encounters the truth of God's word about her situation and about who she is. Maybe she is a picture of, of you and I in our lives trying to live maybe two different lives. I had a friend of mine call me one time. He was just miserable, a lot like some of us. Jeff, I'm struggling. I, I believe in Jesus and this and that, but I keep going out and doing a bunch of this stuff, and I have shame and guilt and all kinds. I'm like, I get it, bro. Here's what you should do. You should just go live out in the world for a while. Like, stop going to church. Stop, like, trying to be a Christian. And he's like, what? <laughs> like, I'm like, here's the problem. You're trying to live on both sides of the fence, and every once in a while you slip. You see what I'm trying to say here? And it's quite uncomfortable for you. <laughs> Pick a side, bro. That sounds cruel and almost debased, but may I remind you that the Apostle Paul had a discussion with some people in the church of Corinth at one point, that there was a person who was acting a fool in the church. And he said these words to the people, the leadership in the church. He says, kick that guy out. He's being an imbecile. He's not acting Christian. He's not whatever. And this is like church discipline. But he says, kick him out. And why? He says, so that Satan can chew on him for a while that he might be saved. Sometimes our circumstances come before us, again, with God orchestrating and sovereign and his strength in our lives. He's orchestrating things in front of us all the time to help us choose. And you and I sometimes forget that God is good and he's faithful and that Jesus Christ has done something for us that we could never do for ourselves. And the circumstances of our life reveal that to us. It's possible that the author of Esther is also showing that to us as, as Esther has to become the person that God really wanted her to be. I uh, mentioned that we should be reading the Old Testament stories looking for Jesus here. And I know it's difficult oftentimes to see Jesus here, but may I remind you of a story that takes place in the New Testament where Jesus is... Um, He's come to an understanding of, of the purpose of his life now, that God has sent Jesus, his only son, to the world because he loves the world, John three sixteen, right? That he's going to save the world. And how is he going to do this? He's going to offer his life as a, 
a ransom or a sacrifice for the world. Because the Bible says this about all of humanity. All of us are born into this condition called sin. And because sin is in us when we're born, that we are fully, ultimately separated from God. And at the end of our days, when we die, we go into eternal death. But God offers us eternal life. This is what Jesus said at the beginning of the message. Remember, you looked into the scriptures looking for eternal life. I'm it, bro. I'm eternal life. So Jesus has come to this realization, understanding that he is the go-between. Much like Esther was the go-between, between wrath and destruction of God's people and God's covenant promises. And someone had to go and try to mediate this exchange that takes place. And she says these words, and I'll go to the king, but if I perish, I perish. Jesus had a very similar exchange with God the Father in a garden on the eve of his arrest and soon-to-be execution. And he goes before the Father and he says, Lord, if there's any other way, if there's any other way to save your people, we'll do that. But if not, not my will, but your will be done. Doesn't that sound an awful like, if I perish, I perish? He's like, I surrender my life to you, God. Use me in the way that you want to use me. And Jesus was arrested and he was flogged and he was crucified the very next day. And he died on a cross. He gave his life as a sacrifice, as a ransom. This is the language that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter 20, verse 28, that the son of man, Jesus came to give his life as a ransom for many. So now at the end of, through Jesus' die, on a cross, he dies, he's buried in a grave, and then three days later, he's raised from the grave. It, it points into this ultimate reality that God accepts his sacrifice. And now, when we have faith in Jesus Christ, when we believe that to be true for us, we enter into the newness of life, we enter into the God's covenant people through Jesus Christ, we enter into eternal life, into all, abundant life, all of these things through the work of Jesus Christ. When I read the story of Esther, I'm, I'm shocked at how much it sounds like Jesus. Is anyone else seeing it? I'm also reminded that many of us um, have to have this understanding too, that when we come to faith in Jesus, we call that being born again or new beginning or whatever, you, whatever language we like to use. It's not the end of our journey with God. Some of you today need to make that decision. I would argue this, that your life is not going to get any better for you. <laughs> I love you. I love you. If you keep following your ways, if you keep trying to do everything your way, hear me. I say this all the time at Renaissance. It's almost become um, noise at this point. But there's no one in this room who has lied to you more than you. There's no one in this room who, who's lied to you more than you. You're always saying, it's, I'll do better next time. I can quit. <laughs> Give me another chance. Let me try again and over and over again. You keep telling yourself you're going to change. And here's the ultimate reality. You, you can't. Because something inside of you is called sin, it, 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 it lords you. It drives you in a way and it, it causes you and puts desires in you to do things that ultimately lead to your death and your destruction. But God in his infinite wisdom has decided a way out for us. And the only way out is through Jesus. 
the only way out. It is a magical, mystical moment when we give faith in Jesus Christ and his sacrifice for us. The Bible says that he gives us a new heart. It's, I don't, it's language that I don't have for you. But something happens inside of us and a new nature is imparted into us and we no longer are driven by sinful desires, but our, our very living in existence is now motivated out of a heartbeat for God. And that's the only way we have hope of change in our life. Yes, thank you. In my mind, there was much larger applause at that. It's called patronizing. It's, pro it's possibly sinful. I don't know. You pray about it. Some of us need to make that change, bro. Broette, girl, I don't know. You need to stop. You need to stop. And your circumstances are dark and they're bleak and you are in a weird spot and you've got to pick. You've got to choose. Am I going to continue to live the way of the world? Or am I going to change and live the way God wants me to live through Jesus? That's some of us in the room. The, uh, the rest of us are maybe already Christians. We've made that decision years ago. Praise Alleluia, right? Thank you, God, for rescuing me and saving me. But every once in a while, we still have to be reminded that decisions, even after our new birth, after we become born again, still have to be made on the daily, on the reg, they say. We've got to continue to just make decisions to choose God, choose God, Choose God. If I could confess something to you right now, I'm in a season of that in my life. I've been a Christian for 25 plus years. In the last few years, as I've been leading this church, I, I got a little complacent. It's easy to do when you work at a church because I work at a church. I mean, my work is spiritual work. <laughs> it's called a lie that my job is no different than your job, that if you pull wire as an electrician or lay pipe as a plumber, or maybe you're a doctor, I don't know what the, what doesn't matter. Your, your job and your life is just like mine, that I have to choose to follow after God every day. And lately, God's really been talking to me about that. Jeff, you really like such and such television show. And Jeff, if we were to spend just a few moments with a piece of paper and a pencil, this is the Lord talking to me. This is how he talks to me. He usually calls me Fro. That's my nickname, just so you know. He goes, Fro, if, if you were to take a piece of paper and a pencil and, and calculate all the hours that you spent watching this television show, and then all the hours you spent praying and um, reading the Bible, and in fact, we'll do all the, the spiritual things together. We'll just lump them all together. <laughs> to take everything you do that puts Jesus on it, and, and see how many hours versus how many hours you spend watching television. Is anyone picking this up? Am I the only one in the room? Yeah. So I get a daily decision to watch this show or to, to go this place or to hang out with that or, or those people. or Not that people are, you know what I mean? And oftentimes I put all of those things before my decision to follow after Jesus. So I did something unique at the beginning of this year. I think I've already shared it with you, so apologies. 
I try not to do anything in my day until I sit down at least for an hour and read my Bible. It's not magical. It's nothing. I just, I do it in front of a, um, I do it in my office. I have a, a full spectrum UV light because I deal with a little seasonal affective depression. Is that what it's called? Right? So I, I set that timer on my UV light for an hour and I read the scripture. I've been Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's all I've been doing since January 1. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. It's all I do. And I'm telling you, man, I, I put that inside of me. And then if I want to watch television later in the day, I feel like I haven't shortchanged the Lord. Is this? Okay. This is me. Do not pattern your life after me. Oh, God, do not pattern your life <laughs> after me or Pastor Joe. Yeah. <laughs> like, it it's trickles off from, from this point. It goes way down. <laughs> And it hits Joe, and that's what we call rock bottom. <laughs> These are jokes. Everybody knows I love Pastor Joe, right, Joe? That's patronizing. <laughs> hmm. Yeah. So we make decisions. That's all we do. So, so this story, I'm done. I ran out of time eight minutes ago. Um, uh, I'm done. I'm done. I woke up the Lord, this morning and the Lord was telling me, oh, that sounds so, so weird to say, but I don't want to perform for you anymore. I'm kind of over it, honestly. I got to come up and I got to make the jokes and I got to do the thing and try to be witty and whatever. And if you walk out of here with some insights because I was performing good for you and I woke up this morning and I said, Lord, I don't want to perform for you or for them anymore. Joe came in this morning. Joe hasn't been feeling well. And um, he said, I didn't even want to go to church today. He goes, I, Jeff, I just don't want to perform today. And I went, say what again? Perform. So I think the Lord is just saying something for us. He's not, he's not at all interested in a performance from us. He's just interested in us choosing him daily and following after him daily. And our life, in my particular scenario, my ministry, right, everything that I do in the church, it'll flow out of my relationship with God first. So apologies to you. I repent that I tried to be your little puppet up here and tried to make you laugh and I tried to be comedic and I tried to do all these things. God has not called me to do those things. He's called me to, to study the Bible and to teach it to you. And it's the Holy Spirit's responsibility to have you hear it or not. All through the New Testament, Jesus, they say these words, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. I, I, I'm not smart enough to convince you of anything. So, yeah. Yeah. Okay. Well, welcome to Renaissance. This is... Um, this is that part of the service where I don't know how to end. So I'm just going to walk off stage now. And the band's going to come back out. <laughs> I legit don't know what to do. Okay, here we go. Um, let's pray. Let's do that. Lord, we love you. We might not act like it some days. and We might be hard-pressed to be noticed as a follower of Jesus some days. But we do love you. 
we do believe in Jesus Christ, your son. <laughs> we do know that our lives are totally transformed by the work that he's done for us. And so we thank you for that, God. God, would you now empower us by the strength of your Holy Spirit to change? Would you empower us to go live the new life that you have for us? That we can actually leave yesterday behind and we don't have to worry about tomorrow. But right now, Lord, we want to enter into a yes time with you. We just want to worship you and say thank you for what you've done. So God, would you bless us? Would you continue to save us even from ourselves, God? We pray these things in Jesus' mighty name. Amen. 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 Thanks for joining with us today. We would love to pray for you and make a connection with you. So please check out the Church at Home page at rendicator.org. Here you can ask questions, request prayer, find past messages and podcasts, or support Renaissance through online giving. We can't wait to hear from you.